podcast for December 11th, 2008. I'd like to welcome back my regular panel with David McKee from the Las Vegas Advisor. Hey, David. Hello. Chuck Monster from VegasTripping.com. Hi, Chuck. Hey, how's it going? Good. Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Good afternoon, Dave. Hey there. And Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas. Hey, Jeff. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Hunter Hillegas, and I run RightVegas.com. And we're going to jump right in with a couple of different things today. Um, we're going to talk the economy and the gaming numbers in a bit. But first off, I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about two topics that are sort of related only because uh, I was in Las Vegas recently, this last past weekend, um, to see the debut of the new volcano attraction at the Mirage. So for those that are not aware, the Mirage is a hotel on the Strip. <laughs> uh, if you don't know that, I don't know why you're listening to this show. Uh, and uh, the iconic volcano attraction outside of the hotel has been blowing up for almost 20 years now. And uh, earlier this year, they completely basically tore it all the way down to the, down to the cement and um, rebuilt it at a cost of, I think, about $25 million and replaced it with this new attraction, which is basically a 2008 version of um, the original. And what that means is more fire, more music, more everything. Um, and I don't know if anyone else has seen it yet in person. There's been uh, a fair amount of media coverage, so I'm sure folks have probably seen photos and that. But I, I thought, and personally, I can say that I thought it was a great addition um, as far as, you know, semi-hokey free attraction type things go. Uh, I think they did a nice job. It, it looks, it just looks more real. I mean, I guess that's what you would expect for $25 million and something that's, that's uh, modern. But uh, it's a huge improvement, I think, over the old one, which has, you know, Love it or hate it has been a favorite of Las Vegas visitors for years and years. I mean, it's always ranked as one of those things that you have to see if you've never been and that sort of thing. Um, has anybody else seen it yet? I'm curious, what, if so, what you guys thought. I did. What did you think? I think it's fantastic. I mean, I saw it from sort of a, a view, um, and I was only able to see half of it. I was staying at uh, Caesars, and I happened to have the north side of the top floors of, uh, of a room on the top floors of the Augustus Tower, and was able to get a partial view, and then we went out on the, uh, on the street and were driving by and saw um, at the next eruption, I guess. And, uh, you know, it's certainly louder from the street. Um, and, uh, I think it's, it's cool. I mean, it's just, it's one of those kind of, uh, you know, it just, it's, it's like another flavor. And I think, you know, that stretch, um, between Sands and, uh, um, sort of the end of Bellagio, um, between the fountains of Bellagio conservatory, um, you know, going up to the stuff that they have in and around Caesars and the forum shops, um, Mirage, Treasure Island. You know, there's a lot of a lot of free things for people to check out and amble around. And you know, it's 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 a great thing for Las Vegas to have a walking distance like that, where you know people people can entertain themselves. It's not all about the money that they can spend here. And I just think it's a great thing. I mean, you know, you go to New York, you know, there are, there are different, you know, 
you know, there are special places you can go and check things out. And it doesn't all cost money. I think it's a good thing for Las Vegas. Not every developer wants to do that kind of stuff, but I think uh, the folks who have done it, um, it does a service for the whole town. Now, at the same time, um, this was, you know, MG Mirage made this investment in recreating this attraction, but uh, we're not really seeing these things built into new hotels as they come online. I mean, when, Steve Wynn shunned the whole concept with Win Las Vegas with his, you know, in his terms, turning the place inside out and basically not wanting to give people free type attractions. And does anybody have an opinion on whether or not we're going to see a return to this sort of thing, um, especially given uh, the you know current state of the economy, people looking for more value and more, you know, more bang for their buck? Will we see more free attractions? Is that is that a possibility? I don't know if we will, but we should. I mean, when you think about the excitement that the the volcano and the pirate show and the Bellagio fountains, which uh, which have worn their years very lightly, have created. I mean, that isn't stuff that that shows up on the bottom line, but it it creates uh, it creates excitement. It, you know, it creates buzz. It creates interest. Uh, that you know, I think it's it was those were all important uh benchmarks in in the reinvention of of Las Vegas and I think that uh, um, that it's been a mistake to to get away from that I think that's why some of these new uh, property openings have lacked the kind of excitement that we associated with that particular uh, generation of Steve Wynn properties we've really only had three hotels if you include encore encore um, Win and Aladdin since that round of hotels that included the Eiffel Tower at Paris, um, you know, Mandalay's, Lush Gardens, they have birds flying around inside, um, Bellagio, obviously, with the conservatory and the, and the fountains. So there's been three hotels. We're talking about 10 years. Um, I mean, it is, and it is a trend. I mean, Wynn built two of them. Um, but it's hard to say that – I mean, I, I, I would be astounded if people don't put um, features that are accessible to the public um, in one way or another. I mean, some of the properties that have been announced and then didn't come through, like the uh, the property that um, Archon was going to build on the Wet and Wild site and the site that for a while was uh, – the uh, Crown folks had an option for. That was supposed to be a London-themed property that would have tons of water and boats, and that would have obviously been pretty open to the public. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, it would be surprising if people don't put um, features accessible to the public. Now, whether they'll all be outdoors on the midway, so to speak, the way Wynn likes to call that the midway, um, I, you know, I don't know if how many will be outdoors. The use of land is pretty expensive. Um, but, you know, certainly free things, you know, like the lion exhibit, the old tiger exhibit, the mirage, um, yeah, those kind of things will continue to be uh, built, I'm pretty sure. The city center is you know, they have invested a pretty decent chunk of change in the public art program that's going to be uh, around there with all the sculptures and whatnot that they bought. And also, you guys have alluded to, uh, I don't really know too much of the details about this water freezing. Yeah, the melted, 
the constantly reshaping and refreezing ice thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so you know, there's it's obviously going to continue to happen. So, I don't uh, know if you can also count the uh, the gondoliers outside of the Venetian as a sort of outdoor attraction because mm-hmm. people, you know, like pigeons, uh, tend to congregate there and kind of squawk. <laughs> although, although Palazzo certainly lacks curb appeal by comparison. It's it's uh, that that's one of the properties that I would characterize as kind of turning its back on the strip. I think that's fair. Yeah, it's built up so close that there's basically you know a sidewalk, and that's about it. Same thing uh, with Fontainebleau. You know, I don't I've, yeah I don't think there's going to be much room for a curbside of you know for for the to do much with the midway there either. One of the things that they incorporated into the new Mirage Volcano is a soundtrack by Mickey Hart, who's a per- who was the percussionist for the Grateful Dead. And you know, the old the old music was very kitschy, kind of um, <laughs> volcano-y music, which was pretty bad actually. Um, but the new music, uh, you know, I was a little bit skeptical when they announced who was going to be doing it, but um, I think it actually really works with the uh, with the program. I, it it um, I think I wrote this somewhere, and I was I heard it somewhere else. Someone's Sort of referred to it as survivory, which is um, sort of exactly what I thought of too when I when I heard it. It's sort of running through the jungle kind of uh, kind of tunes, and um, you know it was it was it's very impressive with the fire and and I have a bunch of photos and I'll post a link to them in the show notes if you haven't for folks that haven't already seen them. And there's quite a few other photos around the web and some video and stuff. But the the amount of fire is is dramatically in increased um and it's just it's a pretty powerful effect especially when you're standing there and you just see the whole basically the whole lagoon light on fire now it's it's impressive even on i'm sorry i was just gonna say it's impressive even on video which is the only way that i've i've seen it so far it is i mean it's it's i would recommend it for anybody even if you've seen the volcano before and and didn't really care for it i think it's a, a big step up and and for someone that was coming to las vegas for the first time I wouldn't hesitate to recommend it as something to check out. Now, during the present during the presentation for the uh, kickoff of this thing, they had uh, Terry Fader, who's their new entertainer, replacing the replacing uh, Danny Gans, uh, who was pretty terrible. I I uh, will not be very excited to see Mr. Fader's show. Not that I was anyway, but I'm even less excited now. Um, but uh, and I think David, you mentioned this in your blog posting. They brought out this check for the Clark County School District. Uh, and first off, let me just say, I think it's great that they would give money to education. But, you know, it was like one of those big checks like that you would get if you won the lottery or whatever. Um, and it was for $5,000, which <laughs> which you correctly pointed out is such a small percentage of the actual cost of the project. It just seemed – it's you know, in in one sense, I feel bad saying something bad about a nice a nice gesture like that. But it – it just almost seemed anticlimactic when they bring out this check, and it's almost like, oh, here's five bucks. <laughs> like, go, go. You can buy a piano for. I mean, it's supposed to be supporting music in schools, but you know, how far is that really going to go? And it hey, that's one. Like, that's one brown chip. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it just, it just seemed, it just, it just seemed kind of sad. At, that's at, how they should have given it. So they should have just handed somebody <laughs> from the school to flip it to a brown chair. Yeah, flip it to him. Here, <laughs> look what I found in my pocket. Here's a brown chip. 
I mean, they're bragging <laughs> on the fact they spent every cent of the $25 million they were budgeted for for uh, that volcano, and then they they can only find five grand for the entire Clark County School District. It's just a kind of bad form all around. Hey, yeah, go, buy, hey. go buy a thousand kids' lunch tomorrow. There you go. Yep. Printing up those checks probably costs about five hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. I think it's like two two one thousandth of a percent of the entire budget. And I, I used to actually be a music teacher uh, in my prior days for a short period of time. And I'll tell you, five thousand bucks is probably going to buy you about eight and a half cellos, uh, <laughs> which is not all that much. And you'd think, you know, Mickey Hart is quite a wealthy guy, and I'm willing to bet that he probably poked them and said, you guys got to do this, because that's really part of what it, where his heart is. Uh, he, uh, you know, I, I would love to have seen him say, you know, I'm going to donate all the money that I made to do this for schools, and then whip out, you know, whatever the 50 grand or so that they, they paid him to do, because he certainly doesn't need the loot. You know, the Grateful Dead industry is still quite alive and well, despite uh, Jerry being gone for 13 years and four months. So it, I, I was shocked at the embarrassment of that $5,000 check. It was pathetic and, and ridiculous. You're making me feel better because I, I was feeling guilty <laughs> for you know, bad-mouthing them, but it, I'm glad that I'm not the only one that thought it was pretty sad. Well, I, I don't think that there's, I think that, that, I don't think there's anybody on this you know, either speaking or listening to this podcast, who doesn't contribute considerably more than two five thousandths or two thousandths of a percent of their annual income to to charity. I mean, it's it's you know, it's, yes, it's five thousand dollars, but when you look at it in the context of how much that company took in in profit just in the last quarter alone, it's it's almost an insultingly small amount. Well, they probably did it as an. Oh, I was going to say donating a lot to other stuff too. So yeah, and 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 they are a great corporate citizen. They probably did it as an afterthought, and it just wasn't well thought, well thought out. They said, you know, what will be the photo moment that people will take from this, you know, group of people we have talking about a um, a volcano for something other than a volcano. You know, giving a, a check is a good idea. It was a small amount, but that is a company that's very philanthropically minded, um, and uh, they do a they do a, a real good job with um, many of the charities in town. So, you know, I I would be hesitant to say. I just think that particular element was probably not as well thought out as most of their other ones. I think it was more the the faux pas of, of the way that they they rolled it out, um, and uh, then then the, the gesture itself it just was it, it was very it was very maladroit and a lot of people have commented on that. Well, could, you, could I could I cite one? Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of you know the bad economy makes makes for a lot of bad decisions on the corporate side. It reminds me of the day after 9-11. A lot of the print media in town got a call, um, and maybe even TV, come out to the uh, American Red Cross um, headquarters, um, the uh, um, United, I'm sorry, the United Way headquarters, which was out on Rancho in uh, Las Vegas. And MGM's gonna make a donation to the uh, 
um, United Way of New York. Um, and so we went out there, and MGM took pains not to bring their executives in limos. They, they rode the uh, much more austere town cars. And they came out, and they brought a check for a million bucks. And it was, you know, Terry Lanning and Bobby Baldwin and, you know, a bunch of the other muckety-mucks. And they gave a million bucks. And then, like, a week later, they realized, man, this air, this uh, this uh, aviation trouble and, you know, closed airport we're not going to be doing much business here in town. And then they started having to lay off people in town. And then they realized that this uh, dip in business was going to last for months and months, probably half a year. And and they had to make this sort of embarrassing move of asking the United Way to send the million dollars back and give it to United Way of Clark County. And, and uh, which they did, but it's, it was just sort of an example of how, Good intentions can go awry. And so, um, you know, but MGM typically is, you know, they try to be a good corporate citizen. But, uh, you know, it's, and, and, and this was a much smaller example of that, but it just is reminiscent. Well, it gave Oscar Goodman a chance to publicly scold the company for sending money to New York when they were, were sacking people by the thousand here, which was kind of a bit of delayed payback for Terry Lanny having opposed Oscar a couple of years earlier. Yeah, and that New Yorker article, that's right. Yeah. Everybody always – he's always going to get his jab in somewhere. Oscar was there as well in his traditional form. But uh, enough about the mirage. I want to move on to talk a little bit about Encore. Um, Encore is the adjoining property next to Win Las Vegas. It's opening on December 22nd. Um, we are going to be covering Encore in a couple of different ways. And Chuck and I have partnered on some web coverage. And maybe, Chuck, I'll let you explain what we're planning on doing. And then I want to talk a little bit about how Encore is progressing and, uh, and the property itself. All right, so uh, the plan is is that Hunter and I and uh, some of the other folks who are floating around on our blogs and sites, Mikey and uh, NTC and a couple other folks, are going to all be in, in Vegas around this time, and we're going to be poking around the property as it opens, uh, and we'll be taking tons and tons of photos and uh, basically doing micro uh, posts and blogging via Twitter, uh, which is a small little uh, – uh, you got like 140 characters anyway. I won't go into that, but uh, and we've we've aggregated it all to uh, auto refresh and display on a specific website, EncoreOpening.com. So basically, you just kind of load that site up when uh, we're about ready to start rolling, and you'll just get to see the the uh, the updates will all just get refreshed and sent right to your browser, and you click links, and you'll get to see uh, tons of photos and uh, commentary. You can ask us questions, and we'll respond to them, or you want us to go check something out, or a picture didn't come out, and you want us to take a better one. You know, It's going to be like a two-way conversation between all of us who are going to be there and everybody on the Internet who wants to know what the hell is going on with this Encore thing. Uh, this technology is pretty new. Uh, Twitter's been around for like two years or so. But this is probably the first time that um, something like this has actually uh, happened, you know, the real live time on the Internet coverage uh, of, of the opening of a casino. Uh, it's probably as, as live as you're going to get without us hauling around a satellite dish on our backs and a, and a couple of huge video cameras. 
So, uh, and we're hoping actually maybe that we might get to do a little bit of video here or there, uh, possibly a quick little call or podcast with all the other folks who are here today. Uh, maybe if we all happen to meet up that night or some point during the week. I know people are going to be there for various amounts of time. I'm going to be there just for the opening, and then I got to actually come back, come back to LA. And then I'm going back for Christmas, and uh, Hunter, you're going to be there like for the opening, and then Mikey's going to be there for a couple of days after that, and you know all sorts of stuff. So there's going to be a ton of people who are going to be in Vegas like around that time. We're going to be posting, and we'll be all twittering about it, and uh, so that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. Uh, I'll, I'm going to be posting the URL for the the site, which is uh, EncoreOpening.com. And um, it should be exciting. You know, I had a, a meeting with um, an MGM person when I was in, in on this last trip, and they were actually aware that we were doing this, and they mentioned that uh, that they would love to see if you know see how this works because <clears throat> they would be excited about seeing something like this for City Center as well when it opens. And it is kind of an experiment um, to see to see how it goes, but it should be pretty exciting. So Encore opens on <clears throat> December twenty second. And the timing has sort of been a little bit in flux, but my understanding, based on what I've been told recently, is that the hotel will open at noon, um, but the gaming will not begin until 8 p.m., and there's going to be some kind of ceremonial first bet of some kind. Um, and then uh, the facility will be fully open. And I was I was there, uh, like I said, this past weekend, and I, I took another walk around the outside of the property, and... You know, they've got quite a bit of work to do still, but uh, they always seem to magically get it done as they pull things together. Um, there were uh, many workers out and about, and, and talking to some of <laughs> some Wind Resorts employees that I know, uh, you know, they said it's really starting to come together on the inside and that uh, they started pulling up all the construction stuff and so cleaning it out and looking pretty good, so it should be exciting. I don't know if any of – I know that they're starting to give tours to certain people. Um, I don't know if any of you uh, have – maybe Jeff, I don't know if you've been on a tour yet. I know that they started showing players the place today. We uh, have been in discussions with them. Um, I think they're going to have uh, – a few people, local media people, have been in to talk with um, Steve Wynn, and we'll have uh, a few more people in early next week to uh, meet with uh, with Steve Wynn, and then they're going to be having uh, – walking tours, partial tours through the week um, with media folks. Next, And then I think a week from Sunday, the day before it opens, they're going to have a, a more extensive media walkthrough with photo capability and video. Um, and now it may be that the hotel's opening at noon. I was told today 2 p.m. Um, that's something that our organization so many considering things. So who knows? Yeah, and 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 open at 8 p.m. to the public, um, with no special provisions for media um, on the night of opening. Um, so the media would be, I guess, uh, with the crowd of people, unless they're in a hotel room, which is uh, certainly something that um, we may be doing. Um, and I think that. Uh, you know, it's 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 always exciting. At least one thing is for sure. It's it's uh, and I remember when when Win opened in uh, August two thousand or April two thousand five. Um, Dave Schwartz was uh, part of the same group that Rick Vallada and I, and maybe another person or two. They had like they were probably twenty twenty five media folks, and they broke them into broke us up into three or four groups 
tortoise around the property with different folks. I, um, I seem to remember, think we had, is it right, Dave? Did we have Elizabeth Blau, the restaurant honcho? Yeah. Is our tour guide. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they do, they do such a good job over there with this kind of stuff. When you compare it to the way, um, they open Palazzo, um, it's, it, it, it should generate and, and what you guys are doing, Hunter and Chuck, I mean, it's, it's like because they at least give you definite times and, you know, or relatively definite times, it allows people to sort of focus on the occasion. Um, it's just unthinkable to me how, you know, and why they would do, they did it the way they did it Sands. But, you know, this is going to be, it'll be a big news event. Um, I will be surprised if you don't see um, on, you know, they're not going to do some big production outside, but I would still be surprised if you didn't turn on, you know, Good Morning America or the Today Show or, you know, the the cable news networks and see video of the places people come in there and, you know, it's just, go, it, it will be covered nationally. It'll be, it'll give the city a boost. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely looking forward to it over here. It's one, it's one of those, uh, great occasions and I'll certainly, uh, set my Blackberry or my, uh, desk computer to be checking out, uh, encore opening. I think that's a fantastic thing you guys are doing and, uh, should be a lot of fun. And, you know, as I was saying earlier, hopefully, schedules permitting, we can do some kind of a, a podcast thing, whether that would be a quick, uh, some quick comments from, from everybody on their thoughts, or however we logistically work that out, still to be determined. But uh, I hope that we can do something like that, because I know yeah, be great. our listeners would love to hear everybody's thoughts on the new property. So transitioning from happy on-car opening to not-so-happy gaming numbers, um, which was the story of yesterday. Uh, you know, they, they fortunately give you all kinds of different metrics, and they've sliced the numbers three ways to Sunday. Um, I think none of them, except for maybe sports betting, were any good. Um, just to give one, throw one number out there, I think statewide that we're down 22% change. Um, you know, and they, they say how, how terrible that is. Um, now, I think several people have been correct to mention that they're comparing it to the year ago, October, which, if I am correct, was actually extremely high for 2007. Mm. So it's a little bit out of band. But, David, you covered this on your blog. Can you quickly give us an idea of how the numbers shaped up um, and uh, what people are thinking out there? Well, I think most of the of the reportage focuses on the year-over-year comparison and that there's not been a lot of contextualization of these numbers. I mean, there are, uh, without question, you know, I mean, it's no, you know, nobody's looking at this and thinking, boy, it was a great month. But, you know, it, it, uh, there was kind of a throwaway line in one of the newspaper stories today saying that these were back to you know, levels not seen since April of 2005. Well, April of 2005 was a pretty good time for Las Vegas. I mean, we were uh, we were on an upward curve, and then the, the February after that, I found myself writing a story about how you know you couldn't get an affordable room on the Strip. There were there were about three places where you wouldn't have to pay a triple digit rate. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, even, even at, you know, so what we're, what we're comparing, you know, even the, uh, 
2000, you know, not seen since 2005. Well, so I mean, we're talking about about a, you know, we're not not comparing this against a depressed period in the history of of Nevada or of the Strip, um, and the uh, what what has obviously. Uh, I mean, a the the year over year comparison has been because you're looking at the 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 worst month of this year versus the second best month of last year. That has a kind of a a multiplier effect on the uh, the discrepancy. And then uh, you know there are so many contributory uh, uh, there's so many external factors which I mean they're just there aren't. You know, so many people whose discretionary income has dried up, and it's in a context where we have a lot of very overextended casino companies. So uh, it's it uh, uh, it's just it. I think that there is a tendency to to look at the story and have the initial reaction that this is the end of the world, and um, you know that's that's not the case. Um, and we're still uh, for the in the locals market for the years so far. It's still up slightly over 2007. I mean, every time we have a you know we have a bad month like this, that that number gets that percentage gets smaller. But um, you know, it's um, I think that there I think that the, too much of the interpretation of these numbers is being done. Out of context. On the other hand, I mean, there are some there are some anomalies in there. Like, uh, for some reason, the the table game play was it was way down on the strip, and for some reason there was a there was a big jump in the amount being played out over at the Boulder Strip casinos. I don't know why. Maybe Jeff has a explanation for that. And then then you have um, the Mesquite Market where. Um, which has been very hard hit of late, and they've been kind of trundling along for most of the year with just you know single digit decreases over o seven and then the last two months, or I should say September and October, just the bottom fell out of that market so um so that's you know that's one of those things for which uh you know the, which the explanation isn't. Uh, isn't really obvious, and it's obviously and it's clearly contributing to to uh, the the crummy numbers we saw for for October. But I just, I mean, my bottom line is that these these are not as crummy as uh, as they appear to be at first blush, and that that secondly, it was something I, I put up today was that, you know that there were. There were warning signs as far back as as o five that this was you know that we were going to reach this point that when when people's savings started going from the the rate at which people were saving dipped below zero percent um, you know and and you saw mortgage you know borrowing hitting unprecedented levels you know that admittedly hindsight is twenty twenty but but people in the industry should have known that this day of reckoning was going to happen, and instead, that is that is the point at which the spending, just uh, you know, the, uh, when it really uh, shot out of control, you know, right at the you know right at the point when when there were indicators showing up that that should have been caution flags. 
I mean, Bernanke didn't know. Greenspan didn't know. Oh, Bernanke um, just blew it off. I mean, you know, you look at all. I mean, I think it's pretty hard to put that on the casino industry executives. I mean, you know, we have our historic cyclical economy. Things get a little overheated. And, uh, you know, in this case, exceptionally overheated. But, I mean, asking folks to have predicted this three years out is probably, uh, I think you're being a little tough on those folks. Um, I, because I don't know. I mean, I think it, there was no one in Las Vegas who was uh, thinking like that three years ago. And I don't, I can't think of anyone nationally that was as well. One question, though, that I would want to ask is, um, it, it does seem like a lot of, well, the, at least some of the planning um, for as planning the pipe, the development pipeline for some of these companies was based on the sort of new baseline, which may not have been, uh, may not, you know, to recalibrate the baseline as the levels that we saw, the incredible business that we saw in the past few years. Was that wise to have that sort of be the new baseline that they used to decide what type of rooms to build in what quantity for what market segment? No, they were riding a bubble that was fueled by cheap credit and easy money policies at the Fed. And I think we came up in our last podcast, this was sort of the, the baseline was treated as the norm. And now that now the bubble has burst and we're back to where we were, you know, three and a half years ago. And um but there was just, you know, the, the spending uh became so accelerated in the interim that you know, it, uh, I think it comes down to a question of can you can you support a 2000 uh, a, a 2009 Las Vegas on 2005 revenues? We shall see. I mean, you know, we're hearing stories about all all of the troubles that some of these companies are in. Uh, I keep hearing even more. Um, you know. Projects such as Luxor's room renovations have been put on hold, and um, you know I even hear stories about people uh, not necessarily completing build out of some of the new projects if they know that they have rooms that they won't be able to fill. And who knows how much of that is actually true? Uh, some of it's just um, you know the rumor mill getting cranked up. But uh, things are tough. I mean, I'm even getting promotional rates from Windless for from Win Las Vegas for $129, which is by far the mm -hmm. I've ever seen a rate for Win. I mean. I know they put a back, tried to put a backstop in and decide they wouldn't lower rates beyond a certain point. That's pretty low. Well, the one thing, I mean, at Caesars Palace, when um, I, I was there for a couple nights earlier this week, and their their best tower, their newest tower, until they open the Octavian um, next year, the, the Augustus Tower, their elevator has a little voice that comes on and says um, – if you press a button for a floor that is out of operation, the doors will not open. It's like there are they have taken floors out of service on their best tower. Um, typically, they you know Caesars regularly takes their older towers, their more difficult to service and clean and access towers, um, saving the Forum Tower and Augustus Tower as their. Uh, giving those the heaviest workloads, they can get the best rates and they have the most demand. But when their best tower um, is, is, um, has entire floors out of service, it tells you that, um, you know, and, and believe me, these properties are doing everything they can by lowering prices and extending offers to their um, card members. It is, um, it is a sign that 
almost no matter what, they can't keep occupancy up. Um, even, you know, this is admittedly a slow period, although NFR prevents it from being a dead period, but um, slower than ever. And uh, it's it's really surprising. I mean, you see it in every restaurant. Um, there are very few places that are, um, you know, anywhere near um, the kind of capacity they would have had, um, you know, in years past. Um, obviously, rates and offers are um, greatly increased. So, um, you know, it, it's it is it is tougher than in the past. But uh, you know, I think David makes a good point that it's not that the that the gambling numbers um, for October um, weren't weren't all that bad taken in a you know five year eight year ten year context. But you know, we have newer and better capacity, and people you know they get their expectations are raised, and their debt requires bigger amounts of money. So it's just a tough situation. But it's Nat. accepting Illinois where they have the smoking ban and Atlantic City where well he they, you know it's not the 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 regional markets are not suffering to nearly the same degree and you know it's you know I suppose there are two ways of looking at it one it was very prudent of the major companies to diversify out into those markets because it's a a backstop now against uh, you know a dip in in business in Vegas. You know, on the other hand, they you know they it does take away some of the appeal of the Vegas product if you can get something of comparable quality and brand name close to home. I you know I think you that there you know both sides of that proposition could be could be argued persuasively. And heck, even in Atlantic City, Harrah's just had a post a, a very good month at a time when nobody else. Is having is doing more than treading water. So yeah, they opened their new tower next to Borgata. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for you know, if it weren't for some you know Gary Loveman turning into a shopaholic and making a lot of questionable acquisitions and deals, we'd probably be having this conversation about you know, look at you know, look at how impressively Harris is is beating the odds in Atlantic City, and look how well their their capital investments in at there and at uh, Horseshoe Hammond are paying off for them. You know, I think that, David, that's one thing. Um, when you think about these private equity deals, um, both Harris and Station, um, I'm not so sure about the, uh, I guess even Aztar before that, and I'm not sure about, you know, the Stratosphere uh and cannery ones, but but looking at the big the biggest one, the Harris one, you know that's a deal where Loveman is sort of putting together a deal that is attractive for his new partners, for himself, you know the private equity guys. He thought at the time, I mean, they wouldn't have put their money up if they didn't think they were getting a good deal. Obviously, the timing was bad for those guys, but think about what a great deal it was for those who sold. Particularly, oh, yeah. ba- particularly Baron Hilton, <clears throat> who was the biggest single shareholder in that company, um, and all the other folks who got you know their you know all time highs. If I you correct me if I'm wrong, it was like eighty, ninety, or some huge amount of money. Um, believe me, if that deal had not happened, those shares would be worth at least seventy five percent less today, if not eighty or ninety percent less. 
Now, they wouldn't have the debt. They'd be able, a much more viable ongoing concern. Workers wouldn't be laid off. Maintenance wouldn't be being delayed. That's all a negative for, on the operational side and for the folks that we know who are in the business. Um, and, but, but for the investors um, who, you know, Loveman is supposed to be representing as, as the CEO, he did a great job for those folks. Those folks cashed out optimally. Um, and it's just the, it's just the other side of that equation. Those who thought they were buying in and could further take, you know, they thought that Wall Street was, you know, dissing the value of that company. They thought, man, we've accumulated all this land on the east side of the Strip. We have all this development potential. We're so big and so large. We're not getting um, enough respect. The, you know, they were they gambled. They were wrong. The timing was bad. But uh, you know, I think it's really probably unfair to criticize Loveman too much um, you know, for that because I think he really did take care of those prior Harris shareholders. Well, he'd made, he'd made several, you know, that was, that was the latest in a series of big acquisitions and deals he had engineered. And that, you know, what wound up being the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But as, as a source of mine likes to say, uh, the timing for the entire private equity phenomenon was exquisitely bad. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, everybody came in right at the top of the market and, and it's just been, you know, it's, uh, it's, there, you know, there are about six companies that are in varying degrees of some of which are private equity, some of which are still publicly traded, but in various varying degrees of, of freefall at this point. Well, one thing I will say is that if you're a customer and you wanted to check out a Las Vegas hotel you didn't think you can afford, this is the time to do it. You, you, I'm seeing some of the best deals I've ever seen. You could stay at Wynn, you could stay at Encore. I saw an Encore deal for 150 bucks for January. Which, for a casino that's just opened, that supposedly at the very top of the market, is um, an incredible deal. Deals at Bellagio, all over the, all over town, and not just room deals. And I'm seeing all these deals for restaurants and crazy t- tasting menus they're setting up to try and get people into the restaurants. They are working 150% to try and fill these places. And so, if you are someone that is interested in this stuff and maybe didn't think that you could afford it, if you do have the ability to do it. Um, take advantage of it while you can because it won't last forever. Even though airfare may be just more expensive, you can drive for half the cost it took eight months ago. You know, you can you can get here for seventy bucks from Orange County instead of one fifty. And I mean, I know players who who are continuing to to come here regularly. I mean, I do. You make a point that I don't make often enough myself, which is if you're thrift minded, this is the greatest time to be to be coming here because the deals are the, the, they, you know, the ones they're rolling out, they just, you know, uh, they're getting, you know, more and more generous by the week. Yep. Absolutely. True. You know, I got the, right before you mentioned that Hunter, I actually fired up the kayak to, to look at the rates and, uh, for, uh, December 21st, you got wind for 149. Venetian and Palazzo for 140, the hotel for 90 bucks a night. Uh, Bellagio 129, Palms Place 119. You know, this is these you know the top uh, top ish uh, uh, tier resorts. You know, this stuff is, is peanuts. 59 bucks for Bally, 52 bucks for the Hard Rock. You know, this is like El Cortez prices. You know. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and three years ago, you couldn't you couldn't find that those. The, 
some of the the higher ones that that Chuck just quoted would represent the low end of what was available. Right. It's absolutely true. So if you do want to come to Las Vegas, come now. Just yeah, we even time. found we found a deal where the thing that Harrow's was offering, where you worked out what the 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 price of the various components was versus what they were selling it for. They were actually paying you a dollar fifty per person per night to stay there. It's crazy, and you know, I don't, you know, they may they may stay this way for a little while, but they won't last forever. So this is your chance, people. Um, okay, I think that's enough bad news for now, and we're basically at the end of the show. But di- but this past week was the annual Las Vegas Marathon, and one of our um, one of our esteemed panel members here actually ran the marathon, Dave Schwartz, uh, who I understand is a has run it before. Um, I'm hoping you'll spend a couple of minutes to tell us uh, what it was like, what you thought, and I know you posted something on your blog. If you, you want to get into that for a minute, just to explain what sure. what your thoughts were. Yeah, absolutely. The marathon's a real fun event. They close off the um, southbound lanes of Las Vegas Boulevard for a couple hours, so you actually run down the strip. You start at Mandalay Bay and then run down the strip all the way to downtown. Then you cross under the train tracks and stuff and end up swinging by the North Las Vegas airport, which is always the worst feeling when you realize that you just ran from Mandalay Bay to the North Las Vegas airport and you're not, you're not even halfway done. It's like, oh my God. Um, then you come down Torrey Pines and Twain, you end up coming behind um, Caesars and then running all the way back to Mandalay Bay. So it's a pretty interesting route. You can see a lot of really cool stuff. It got a really good view of city center. And I don't know if, if you guys know anything about this. There's some really neat orange stuff in the inside there. Do you guys know what that is? Orange stuff? Yeah, it's like, like uh, orange. They, you know how everything has that washed-out glass look? There's one thing in there that's orange or part of something. Yeah, I don't know either. It's either the convention center for Aria or Crystals. I couldn't really tell because I was 25 miles in and <laughs> <laughs> not really studying things. But um, it's pretty cool. The the strange thing, probably the, the weirdest thing about running a marathon in Vegas is when you show up for the race, it's usually around 4 or 5 in the morning, and there's this culture clash where you're coming in in your running clothes, and you've got the people who've been out all night clubbing or the working girls just kind of looking at you like you're nuts, and you're looking at them like they're nuts. So that's, right. kind of, that's kind of fun. Um <laughs> There's been some problems with the race management. It really wasn't well run this year. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. But next year, the people who run the rock and roll marathons are going to be running it. So next year, it's going to be really cool, I think. The rock and roll marathon people have bands along at different mile markers along the course. And it's just a much better organization. So I think it'll work out a lot better. But it's definitely a different experience. It's definitely something different to try in Vegas uh, if you haven't done it before. And it gives you a great excuse to pick out at the buffet two nights before so you get that carb load. So how long did you train for this thing before you went out there and ran it? This Well, we have – oh, yeah, they also do a training program. And we've been training since around June. Oh, okay. So it's a pretty long training program. So, And pretty much I had people in my group who'd never run seriously before. So you can have people who just want to get off the couch and start running. And we start out running, I think, a mile or two the first day, and we build up to 26.2. Nice. And are you willing to share your time with us, or is that a clue? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, this, 
this year I was leading, I was the pace leader for a group and we wanted to finish in 4.15. And according to my GPS thing, we finished around 4.13. And that's when we hit 26.2. And, but my official marathon time was 4.16 because it just looked like it was further. It was uh, the final distance was 26.42. So it's that extra two tenths of a mile. <laughs> which I, I don't know if the satellite was wrong or the course was wrong, but that was just an awful feeling to see my thing come up 26.2 and some guy says, oh, you've got another quarter mile to go. Keep going. <laughs> so well, that was fun, though. Congratulations for finishing. I, I uh, You're a better man than I am in that case. I don't think I would make it <laughs> 2.2, let alone 26.2. Um, but, you know, it's 2. fun. I, I did <laughs> – I caught some of it on TV, and uh, it did look like fun. Um, you know, I guess people run in all kinds of crazy outfits and there was a wedding chapel situation and all kinds of gimmicky Vegas type stuff. Yeah, they've got the run through wedding chapel and they they have the Elva Elva. But I found out they've the Elva at a lot of different marathons, so I guess it's oh, really? the Vegas thing. Um it's kind of funny cuz along the way I passed a couple of the Elva and you just have to wonder when they finally when it finally sunk in that geez, you know, running 26 miles dressed in a costume is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not gonna, I shouldn't have done this, but uh, it looked like they were having fun. Well, excellent. Uh, yeah, so congratulations. And uh, anyone else that wants to do it next year, um, you might want to go read uh, Dave's blog posting because he talks a little bit about his experience, which is always very interesting, over at dieskast.com. Uh, I think that's going to be it for today. So I want to say thank you to everyone for being here. Big thank you to everyone listening. Uh, and I'm going to go around the table and let people let you tell people where they can find you. Uh, before I do that, first though, I'm looking at the calendar. We usually do the show every two weeks. Two weeks from today is Christmas Day, which is probably not be doing a show on Christmas Day if I was going to guess. Um, but you know, hopefully, like we suggested, we can pull something together for for the opening of Encore, which is a few days before in that week. So you know, I'll post something on the website if we can, if, as we try to work out our logistics here between between us. So uh, for those that are interested, uh, keep your eyes open for that uh, as we try and figure that out. And uh, here we go. So Jeff Simpson, if people want to track you down, where can they find you? InBusinessLasVegas.com. Excellent, Mr. Dave Schwartz. How about you? Diascast.com and the newly remodeled but not yet finished gaming.unlv.edu. We're adding tons of stuff over there. Oh, cool. I'll have to go back and check that out myself. It's been a while since I've visited the site. Um, Chuck Monster, how about you? Where can people track you down? Encoreopening.com. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Nice to get that plug in there. Uh, last, yeah. certainly not least, Mr. David McKee, where can people track you down? LasVegasAdvisor.com. Excellent. Uh, I'm at RateVegas.com, and I want to say thanks. Have a great weekend. Talk to you guys soon. Music.